You are listening to Serve, Protect, Lead, a podcast from the International Association of Chiefs of Police, where you will hear from ICP leadership and police leaders across the globe, sharing wisdom, insight, and perspective. My name is David Chipley, a retired Colorado Sheriff's Office Commander, the Executive Director of the Colorado Information Sharing Consortium, and your moderator. Welcome back to the ICP Seizures Policy Modernization Podcast Series. As you know, the FBI Seizures Policy is changing to meet modern challenges impacting American public safety entities like yours. Aided by the Advisory Policy Board, or APB, which is comprised of public safety executives from around the country, the Seizures Division of the FBI has done its level best to improve Seizures Policy intended to help protect all criminal justice data nationwide and beyond. However, please also remember to touch base with your state CSO or ISO to learn the unique aspects of the implementation of this updated policy in your state. Today, we present the fourth of now at least seven IACP-endorsed Ask the Expert podcasts that will cover one of five CGIS policy primary security control groups and their key subtopics from the first two series of revisions. The purpose of our podcast is to present information regarding the CGIS policy, something that applies to all public safety personnel in a stimulating and value-adding way. Our expert panelists today are, first and foremost, our dedicated producer, Jim Emerson. Jim is the vice president at the National White Collar Crime Center, NW3C. He's also the chairman of the IACP Computer Crime and Digital Evidence Committee, and the co-chair of the IACP Seizure Security Policy Modernization Working Group. So a mouthful. Welcome, sir. Welcome to the retired Homeland Security Investigation Supervisory Special Agent and a subject matter expert in law enforcement data sharing matters, Mr. James W. Buckley, Jr. Great to have you aboard, Jim. Thank you. Um, our next returning panelist is the CGIS Information Security Officer, or the ISO for the Kentucky State Police, Mrs. Erin Marie Oliver. It's great you could be with us again, Erin. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and once again, it is my great pleasure to welcome Chris Weatherly, a nearly 30-year veteran of the FBI service and a very personable FBI CGIS Division Information Security Officer and the leading CGIS Policy Authority. Here we are again, Chris. Uh, thank you, Ships. Great to be back. As we've said before, and I, I like helping out, as the FBI ISO, Chris continues to receive specific questions regarding application of the CGIS policy. One of his most common and very reasonable responses is, it depends. We like to have a little fun with that, though. <laughs> hey, Chris, um, the, the other day I overheard a swimmer ask a pool manager if the pool was safe for diving, the manager must have been a friend of yours. You know what he said? No, what? It deep ends. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but I'm pumped. Well, okay. That was, uh, I, I won't quit my day job. How's that? <laughs> okay, let's talk some more about uh, Siege's policy, and let's go into the media and protection threat, shall we? Uh, policy 5.8 MP-7A, which restricts the use of digital and non-digital media on agency-owned systems that have been approved for use in the storage, 
processing or transmission of criminal justice information by using technical, physical, or administrative controls and prohibit the use of personally owned digital media devices on all agency owned or controlled systems that store, process, or transmit CJI, just a bit more, and C, prohibits the use of digital media devices on all agency owned or controlled systems that store, process, or transmit CJI when such devices have no identifiable owner. Now, that's a lot, I know, uh, but I also know how thoroughly you know these policies. So to the group here, do all external media devices have to be encrypted when exchanged with another authorized user? Well, Ship, from the from the policy perspective, <laughs> it depends. Um, <laughs> it depends on where the media is. It, it it depends on if the media is staying within a physically secure location or if it's leaving that physically secure location. Um, and if it's going outside that physically secure location, we need to ensure that the, the media is encrypted, right? Uh, so that we don't, uh, if we accidentally lose that device that we're carrying the media upon, uh, that it isn't easily uh, broken into. So, uh, you know, I would say that um, depending on where or deep ending, if you will, where the uh, where the media is, uh, definitely we need to employ encryption for that. Um, so how do we envision the effective management of decryption codes across the entirety of an agency? Well, SHIP key management has always been a security administrative overhead that people didn't relish. It's something that um, takes time, it takes discipline, there has to be a plan for it, and frankly, um, it needs to be less than completely complicated, uh, something uh, so that people will default to using it properly. Uh, so the system that's put in place, the solution that's put in place, really has to account for the humans. Uh, our good friend George Vitt, if he were here, would say something about making sure that it was user friendly uh, or something to that effect, you know, at, at, at the real you know, audience, the users. Uh, so uh, plan has to lay out essentially what what types of hardware in play, how they're going to be marked and essentially how that key control is going to work around that hardware, given the actual workflow, the physical exchange of data uh, from from one entity to another. Right now, then that ask, gets me to that next question. Um, you all have significant experience with agencies and issues just like this one. How would you recommend managing encryption codes across the entire agency or interagency sharing, such as with a state's attorney or a district attorney? Probably a lot of that, that will just be more of a written policy, it will probably be some form of a, and I'm talking on behalf of the small department, the majority, the 80% that are 25 or less in out there that don't have huge budgets. So they're going to, you know, the department's going to be probably going down to Staples, buying a handful of uh, thumb drives. Uh, and you're going to be physically delivering it to, say, the state's attorney's office. Most of that's going to be on the officer that is his case. And they will probably, you know, in most cases, in trying to keep it as, as simple as possible, will be devising 
the encryption key. Um, you know, as long as it, the that number alphanumeric, whatever it may be, is of the required length, then it's going to need to be brought over. They will probably put, I would recommend they would probably then put it on that drive, walk it over, and then separately, whether it be via an email or something, some other way of doing it, then once they hand it over, once it gets signed off, that the the who they hand it over to says, yep, I'm taking possession of this. Then they can turn around and give them uh, the decryption key in order to do it. And then, as most people say, once it's done, once it's over with. But the biggest thing is, is realistically, is keep it as an agency one. Don't turn around and, you know, having a one of those, you know, moments where you think you know better and you know you did something on your own personal device and now you're going to lose it for years because it just became evidence and the the uh defense is going to want to do forensics on it i.e your phone or something to that effect this is not just an urban myth right darren you've had experience with people that actually have lost their personal media Yes, we, we've actually had members of our own organization that have, you know, violated their own policy, so to speak, of plugging in a personal device to um, a CGIS device that they shouldn't have. Um, and something occurred during that time period that was captured through the computer device and they felt was captured on the personal phone device. and several years later it's still in evidence because it hasn't officially been finalized could end up being a federal case so you know things like that can happen and we know because we updated even stricter policies um, and discipline policies on top of that so you have to think about from start to finish every policy from from when that device um, personal device got connected to whatever device it was connecting to, let's say, you know, I was just charging it. Well, it doesn't matter. It's still reading, it's still reading the information that is on your personal device. You know, we try to stress that to our agencies, our own agency, um, across the state to not plug in, you know, like, oh, I need to charge my phone. I, I need to plug it into my MDT. No, you have a special place to plug that into. Don't plug it into your MDT because if it's your personal phone, then you're taking a big chance on losing that for a lengthy period of time, possibly, or it crashing or something happened to it. Or, you know, if your MDT is affected by some ransomware, then that's going to affect your personal device, too. And then you follow that whole trail and that can just affect a multitude of not only not just your devices, but other agency devices and and your personal devices. Chip Aaron gives me Chip Aaron gives me a great segue. You know, we we when we wrote the policy about media protection, we you know we we considered these things, but one of the things we were trying to do was eliminate the fact that we could share malicious code via these these devices, right? If I'm that's the reason the policy says a lot of restrictions and prohibits, um, and it plays into rules of behavior that the user is signing, right? I will not use a personal thumb drive. Uh, I will, you know, not take an agency thumb drive and put it into another system. And that's the reason we tried to, the policy was written that way, was to restrict that 
transfer of you know potentially malicious code you know aaron said maybe the mdt had ransomware on it and now it, it sucks down to the to the uh, individual's uh, personal phone i look at it in reverse right i'm, I'm assuming that the mdt is more secure with uh, with the policies that we've put forward and, and introducing that personal phone actually i mean that's how dangerous could that be to inject you know some sort of malicious code a, a worm or something like that that would that would just devastate an agency's infrastructure uh, through you know through the introduction of a personal device. Hey, Ship, Chris makes a really good point. It wasn't that many years ago we did some research at ICP, and it was all security test and evaluation. People like to refer to it as pen testing. So we came at uh, six volunteer agencies externally. Uh, some of the rules were if you hit federal, stop. Uh, you know, we that we, we were trying to be reasonable about what we thought the outcome might be. But one of the things that happened that I remember very distinctly as Chris was talking was that if we dropped a flash drive in the parking lot out in front of a police station, inevitably somebody would carry it through the door and plug it in just to try to figure out who'd lost their information. They were trying to do good. And in, in that case, they did harm. Um, so what I'm hearing, and especially on my own back past case investigation, we're now getting more and more rigid on demanding that people that are accessing this information using media, no longer can you use case pressure, uh, time pressure on a case or convenience uh, to justify use. You simply cannot. It's just not worth the risk. Okay. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. Let me take you then from media protection. Let's move into systems and service acquisition. Um, policy 5.14. SA-22 says law enforcement agencies are required to A, replace system components when support for the components is no longer available from the developer, vendor, or manufacturer, or B, provide the following option for alternative sources for continued support for unsupported components, original manufacturer support or original contracted vendor support. We talked about the, the, the easy, you know, handheld media. Now we're talking about the hardware. What could this mean for agencies that have not or cannot uh, replace expiring equipment? So, so Ship, um, one of the things that you really have to kind of uh, discuss is the context that gives way to this particular mandate. And, and that is somebody produces a product, an operating system, uh, let's say for a computer, that operating system is designed to have a certain life cycle. It's gonna run for five, six, seven years, whatever the manufacturer decided. They're gonna create um, a support process, which is gonna update every time somebody determines there's a vulnerability, a point of risk for that system, that support process is gonna fix it. They're going to offer a patch, a way to address that and to harden that system back to where it was to begin with. When it ages out, when that system ages out, that process is gone, arguably, and, and the premise for what we're talking about here. I mean, there are mechanisms where you could take an aged out piece of software and maybe run it in a completely disconnected sense, you know, air gapped somewhere, you know, isolated by itself, being attended to manually. Uh, that's a lot of work. And it takes a lot of discipline to maintain that type of an option. But I would think that that's a, a type of option that might be something that, you know, could work if it were an absolutely mission critical, critical asset of some sort. 
Yeah, and that air gap. This is Chris from from the bureau. The, that air gap. I mean, we're talking air gap, not not even connected to the internet, because as as Jim was saying, you know, these products have a lifespan, and once they get to the end of that lifespan, it, it becomes more uh, costly for the manufacturer to continue to maintain that, right? And what happens is once they in in support on that on that piece of hardware, that piece of software. Uh, the vulnerabilities don't continue, uh, don't uh, uh, cease to exist. Those vulnerabilities still exist, and and in essence, you know, a zero-day exploit is is defined as something that that the manufacturer doesn't know anything about, and somebody ex- is exploiting it actively. Um, at the end of support, everything becomes a zero-day exploit, right? Because the manufacturer doesn't know may not even care because they've ended support and, and advised you to move on to a, a, a system, a hardware, a piece of hardware or software that they are actively supporting. Now, you can uh, you can get support for a product after its so-called end of, end of life. Get out your checkbook. It is going to be costly, right? And eventually they'll just say, no, it's just, it's just not worth it. Uh, the manufacturer will say it's just not worth it for us to maintain it. Well, if I'm looking at it from an end user standpoint or, or a, you know, pre-supervisor, for example, trying to come up in an agency, does this kind of a rule, does this rule effectively require the death of all non-supported legacy systems, which still contain valuable agency data? Uh, well, I would say no. Let's go back to the ear gap thing again, because we've, we, my agency's had this problem. Many of the agencies has this problem. They have old systems that they basically then completely silo or we completely silo because we didn't want to transfer that data to the new system because there was a lot of, you've heard the old adage, garbage in, garbage out. Um, and that's what, you know, they were afraid of uh, going, you know, with that then, yeah, so you can keep it, you can go back to it as long as it's, as Chris said, it's completely air-gapped. Um, and going forward, the next thing I would always do is when you go f- for a system is always thinking about, OK, it's this. It is going to cost me more when I have to come and start budgeting right from day one of you getting that new system, putting a little pot away for there. And how we learned a lot of agencies have learned about this, particularly states that supplied IAFA systems. And Chris can remember this is when. They, a lot of IAFA systems were still being run on Windows 95, hmm. you know, and they, uh, you know, and had to go and buy all new IAFA systems, you know, when, you know, Windows 10 came out. So, you know, that type of thing that was happening. I just want to go back to one thing, though, in reference to what we were previously talking about. And this is something uh, that Chris had previously, but nobody said anything. When you get that device, that agency-owned device, back from wherever it has, make sure you scan it. Scan it in another air-gapped device if you can, so it doesn't, because something may have transferred over from, say, the state's attorney's network and you don't want it to go back on your network. That's a great point, Jim. I'd like to just um, bring up something on that too, just to make listeners aware um, that what can happen when you bring back um, a device, let's say that's end of life and, oh, well, we need to use this. There's an extra person here at this console or whatever, and we need to, you know, use this device. And 
Nobody scanned it. Nobody did anything to check it. And when they plugged it in, guess what? It had ransomware. Hmm. And when it went live and when it got connected to the network, it literally took that entire agency. It was an entire 911 center. And it was a very large agency and took them down to bare bones to where the state police had to take over for them. And they had to rebuild everything from the ground up. And lucky for us, for our state message switch at the time, was on a completely separate network. So there was nothing that touched the NCIC network itself. So that was on a complete separate network. But had it not been, this could be a whole different topic. Well, then that, it kind of makes my next question, which is really my last one. Um, can support for this equipment not be provided by trained agency personnel? It, it sounds like no. without question, the answer is no, or it's so incredibly expensive and, and uh, challenging to the agency, it's just not worth the effort. Yeah, I, it, you know, I hate to say it, but it depends, right? Um, <laughs> it, <laughs> who, who, you know, who manufactured the the hardware, the software? Is that when you say trained support personnel, are they are they as trained as the person that that built the device or you know built the software? Is there any way for them to maintain that that level of awareness and knowledge to to be a, an effective support, right? Uh, for that for that end of life manufacturer uh, for that end of life to, uh, hardware or software so it just it's yeah I, I wouldn't recommend it and and Chris Chris has made a point a number of times in in building to these podcasts about the difference between whether data is actually encrypted or whether CJI is plain text at any point in that interaction. I mean, cause that's a that's a qualifier for it depends as well. If if you have FIPS quality encryption around that data at the time that a process is running, well, maybe you have managed it to a point of acceptable risk uh, with, with those personnel. Otherwise they've got to have role-based CJI access to be doing what they're doing. That's right. And it, one last thing, Ship, I know we're, we're getting kind of short on time here, but uh, you know, Aaron made me think about, you know, when she talked about the uh, the information system coming back online that had ransomware, we have, you know, external uh, external entities who, you know, some of them don't care for law enforcement. I know that's difficult mm-hmm. to imagine, but the, there are people who are actively searching our networks. And one of the things they do once they gain access into the network is they're going to do a, something like a ping sweep or an NMAP scan, and they're going to discover all these devices that are connected and if they find one that is Windows 95, as, as as Jim Buckley was saying, they'll use that as a pivot point to get to other places within your network. So if 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 your agency has deemed it, yes, we have to have this historical data air gap. I mean, completely air gap, not connected to any of the network, not connected to the Internet, uh, things like that, because it can be used as a pivot point to get to other uh, systems within your architecture. I think it's been one of our more outstanding uh, discussions on these topics, and I certainly think we arrived at the deep end of the policy discussions. <laughs> so uh, thank you all so much for your, <laughs> your insights and uh, just your experiences. It means a lot to the people who are listening. So today the panel talks specifically about 5.8 MP7, which was media use. Please let me once again extend my sincere appreciation to our expert witnesses Chris Weatherly, Aaron Oliver, 
Jim Buckley and Jim Emerson. Um, your insights and contributions add value every time we meet. Thank you. I get it. I get a lot of value out of it as well. Listeners, please leave a review and questions, then join our next podcast, which should be soon, where the panel will discuss key updates in the systems, information, and integrity control group portion of the CGIS policy. So until next time, may you live as long as you want, but never want as long as you live.